Get yourself settled, get your booklets open. We're on page eight. Talk to Friday morning, God above and beyond. I want to encourage you to have your Bibles open again. Uh, probably start off in that Isaiah passage, but be ready to flick around. Well, I wonder when you have had a moment of transcendence. You know a moment where you feel small, where suddenly the world opens up before you. Uh, maybe for you it's that, that sense of floating out past the breakers at the beach. That sense of smallest, of the immensity of the ocean opening up before you. And that mix of both tranquility right on the edge of terror. A sense of transcendence. See, as you look around the universe, I don't think it's difficult to conclude that most things that we have a desire for have an object of that desire. Let's play a word association game. Thirsty? Water. I'm glad that came up, not Coke. Hungry? Ugh. Tired? Not many coffees there. Okay, good. Uh, but more seriously, have you ever felt this kind of longing, this, this almost ache that we can have for something more? When you look up at the starry sky, when you stare out at the, the fathomless ocean, when something stirs in you, that restlessness of longing for something beyond the humdrum of life. Uh, Charles Taylor, who I mentioned last night, the, the man who described this expressive individualism that dominates our culture, also charts how with the rise of secularism in the West, a process has taken place, what he calls disenchantment. That we've taken this naturally, uh, this rigid naturalistic worldview in which we've tried to flatten out reality, to delete any sense of the transcendent of a, a greater reality beyond what we can see and touch and feel. We are, after all, just the outcome of a celestial explosion, perchance. Our culture's tried to quench transcendence, but never quite been able to eliminate it, I don't think. Even just recently, uh, the ABC reported a, a research project conducted by uh, McCrindle on behalf of the Centre for Public Christianity that had 57.9% of Aussies believing, or at least open to believing, in a God or a greater power. Another study showed that 31% of Aussies believe that there's an abstract spirit or life force, while another 29.4% believe that there is a personal God. And one writer puts it like this. This dual process of secularization and suppression brought low the ceiling of the world and drained the vibrant colors of life to a paltry gray, leaving young people with a gnawing hunger to come into contact with something beyond what they can see and touch, to be swept up into something bigger than themselves. And all of this strikes me as that we have a need that we just can't shake. A sense that science hasn't quite satisfied, that there is something more to this world. That as we look around at the plagues and the floods and the wars and the chaos, 
We need something beyond us. We need a God who is bigger than us. A God who is worthy of our worship. Last night we tackled some of the issues of how we come to know and speak about this God. That if he is real and present, we must rely on him to make himself known to us, to bridge the gap. And so this morning I want us to spend time thinking about the question, the slightly awkwardly worded question, what is God? How he is unlike us. What are his qualities, his being, his essence and nature? Because I want us to recalibrate the meaning that we pour into that word God. And to do that according to how he has made himself known. One theologian, A.W. Tozer, puts it really beautifully like this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshipper entertains high or low thoughts of God. That our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. So in light of that, let me pray. From Psalm 85, let us hear what God the Lord will speak. Lead us, Lord, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts may be pleasing in your sight. Amen. We start with the profound truth that there is none like him. In some ways, this is the foundational starting point for Israel's conception of God. The God of the Bible is not one among many, not the first among equals, or the greatest of a genus. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, he puts it plainly, this is what the Lord says, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no other God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Or again, back in Isaiah 40 from verse 12. Who has measured the oceans in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Yes, this is God speaking in what we call anthropomorphisms, human analogies that we can grasp. But you get the point, don't you? The oceans cupped in his hand. He appraises the vastness of space by measuring it. He weighs the mountains like I do flour for a cake recipe. He needs no advisors, no experts, no specialists to guide him. My favorite verse down in verse 26, who created all the stars? God calls them out by name, like we would beckon a dog. Friends, God is God. Above all things, beyond the physical. And this leads us to the really foundational idea in a Judeo-Christian worldview, which is that there are two categories. There is God the creator, 
and everything else. The creator and his creation and creatures. There is no second God. It's not like Thor and Loki. You know, a, a second sort of uh, put aside brother lurking as his spurned equal or a dark side balancing the light side. No, to whom will you compare God? Isaiah 40 verse 18. Who is my equal? Verse 25. And the answer is, verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator to the ends of the earth. There is no competition. But here we have a problem, don't we? Because as we saw last night, God is hidden from us. He is invisible. And yet, paradoxically, his hiddenness still enables him to be present somehow. And this is a problem because humans find that hard to deal with. We have a tendency to try and want to domesticate God. Because he is so utterly above us, with no one and nothing like him to which we can compare, our little brains reach, our wandering hearts try to make him manageable. We try and boil him down. Put him in a box. Make him tame. See, the problem of idolatry is not just worshipping idols, false gods. It's also false worship of the true God. Of having false conceptions of who he is and what he is like. The I like to think of God as statements where we project onto God our desires, our values, our thoughts. But this, as the Bible shows, is profoundly dangerous. Just take, for example, the devastating th story in Exodus 32 of Israel. Only shortly after being delivered from Egypt by powerful signs and wonders, go and shape for themselves a golden calf. And the worst bit is, they say, here, Israel, here is the God who delivered you. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Aaron proclaims. But God is unlike any other. He shares his glory with no other. We would do well to consider how our worship of him may be false. How we might project onto him how we think he should be. So bewaring of idolatry. Let's go on to check the wheel of our theology. Remember that? To pull together some of what the Bible says about the nature of God. And we're going to do this, um, as we start doing this story, we'll start using words that aren't necessarily in the Bible, you'll notice. And the reason for that is, uh, the church over history has employed all the tools at its disposal, including language and philosophical terminology to speak with precision about God. Now, we don't have a philosophy department at UTS, so welcome. Hopefully you learned something. So the question, what is God, is seeking to describe God's being, his essence, his nature, what God consists of, his godness, if you like. 
And when we come to the Trinity, this becomes centrally important because we'll start to differentiate between what we say is God's being and his persons. So theologians tend to talk about God's nature in terms of, uh, they'll say his attributes or his perfections sometimes in the older school language. These are the things that are essential to God, things that are attributable to him. And they're called perfections because they're like the highest form of something that we can imagine, such as goodness. We can get goodness in our minds and in our experience, but God is the ultimate goodness. And precision matters because it helps keep the wheel true. Uh, Since language conveys truth, in the first four to five hundred years of the church, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, and great effort made to avoid saying false things of God, to, to tighten the spokes of the wheel where they'd started going wonky to sharpen what we can and must say about God to be true. Now, we haven't got time to delve into this today, though I'm a bit of a history buff, so I would love to. And I'm happy to talk to you more, but you have a chance this afternoon. Aaron on our team is running a seminar on the historical development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Spaces are limited. But for now, I just want us to dwell on two aspects of God's being that I think... A, we haven't often thought about much in the church these days. But there are also aspects that I think are important because while they're by no means exhaustive of who God is, they do provide what I think are certain boundaries or limitations to our exploration. Think about it like this. Uh, Coming here, you would have come down the highway at some point and you would have had crash barriers on each side that would have prevented you hopefully, from veering off into you know, chaos and bush and all that. Well, these certain concepts that I'm going to draw out to you, drawn from the Bible, are codified in a way to act like crash barriers, to, to help us stop going off the road into heresy. And this is especially important when we come to make sense of the Trinity. Let's get started. Uh, who he has small children as relatives, or maybe you teach Sunday school. Okay, most of us. Kids have a habit of asking really tricky questions, often at really inopportune times, like when you're trying to go to the toilet. (laughs) How would you answer the question, who made God? Just turn to the person next to you and have a crack. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. A kid comes up to you, who made God? All right, hopefully you've just managed to solve that issue. You can let all the parents in the room know how to answer that question. Now, it's unlikely, I imagine, that your answers included reference to God's aseity. Anyone? Anyone? But whether or not you realize it, you probably touched on this concept. Aseity. 
It's not a biblical word. It comes from the Latin a se, which means from oneself. Okay, it means from oneself, that something is, is self-existent. And while it's not biblical vocabulary, it is, I think, a biblical concept. Let me show you in some passages. First of all, you might like to flick over to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 verse 14. This is the moment where God confronts Moses in order to commission him to lead the people of Israel out of slavery. God's already identified himself by his works in verse 6. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the forebears of Israel. Then Moses says, who should I say sent me to Israel? In other words, who are you? And God's response is, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. See, in case you hadn't tweaked to it, this is a pretty big moment. God names himself. I am. That's a verb, isn't it? See, verse 14, we have uh, in the Hebrew the first person singular verb, to be. That is, I am or I will. In verse 15, your Bible probably has the word Lord in upper caps. And behind that word is something very alike to this third person singular of to be. He is. Now I say alike because in the Hebrew, it's four letters, yod, hey, wow, and hey, which I know you wanted to know. Uh, they look a lot like the verb to be. But in the annals of history, a time came when the Jews stopped pronouncing this name. That whenever they saw it, they'd actually just sub in the word Adonai, the, the more generic word of Lord, because they wanted to reverence God's name. So you might have heard the name Yahweh. This is our best guess at how it may have been pronounced, and which was used in the New Testament when the Old Testament was quoted. Now, it's an assertion here. This name is an assertion, a declaration from God that he himself is utterly self-existent, self-determining. He's not defined in reference to something else. There's not even a, a hint. Uh, sorry, there's even a hint, I should say. There is a hint that uh, as he speaks now from the burning bush, the bush is not consumed. The fire of God is self-existent. It's not burning something else up in order to be, it just is. Uh, we see it elsewhere in places like Psalm 90 verses 1 to 4. Psalm 90, 1 to 4. Lord, you've been our dwelling place through all generations before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. 
He is without beginning, without end. You can't trace backwards and find God's birthday. He has neither beginning nor end other than himself. Revelation 22 verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the A to Z, the first and last, the beginning and the end. And the more philosophical theologians reasoned by describing God as the ultimate cause, I mentioned this last night, the unmoved mover, the one from whom all things began, that everything else flows from and has its existence in this being for whom there is no prior cause. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Acts 17, verses 24 to 25 and 28. The God who made the world and everything in it is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he, made, uh, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. For in him we live and move and have our being. God is supreme being. He just is, always was, and always will be. Before you were born, before even Paul Winch was born, all the foundations of UTS or even Sydney University was laid, before the Colosseum and the pyramids and the mountains themselves were formed, before anything in the world existed, there was God. In himself, self-existent, the great and eternal I am. He's not dependent upon anyone or anything. He is fully actualized. A tongue twist away of saying that in God there's no need, no unrealized potential or growth, no lack that must be filled. He needs nothing. But his aseity speaks of God more than in just in negatives, that he doesn't need or isn't this. I think it also captures the fullness of his existence. Listen to how one theologian puts it. This is my man, Herman Bavink. Theologians often have great names. You've just got to run with it. Herman Bavink. He says, God is exclusively from himself. Not in the sense of being self-caused, but being from eternity to eternity who he is. Being, not becoming. God is absolute being, the fullness of being. And therefore, also eternally and absolutely independent in his existence. In his perfections. In all his works. The first and the last. The sole cause and final goal of all things. In this aseity of God, conceived not only as having been from himself, but also as the fullness of being, all other perfections are included. Or he says again later on in the book. I don't think this one's on the screen, sorry. God does not simply call himself the one who is and offer no explanation of his aseity but states expressly what and how he is. Then how and what will he be? That is not something one can say in a word or describe in an additional phrase, but he will be what he will be. That sums up everything. 
This addition is still general and indefinite, but for that reason also rich and full of deep meaning. He will be everything to and for his people. It's not a new and strange God who comes to them by Moses, but the God of the fathers, the unchangeable one, the faithful one, the eternally self-consistent one who never leaves or forsakes his people. He is unchangeable in his grace, in his love, in his assistance, who will be what he is because he is always himself. He will be what he is because he is always himself. Idols are created. God is uncreated. Idols are contingent. God is self-sufficient. Idols are lifeless. God is life abundant. There have been some more recent uh, formulations of the doctrine of God in what's known as process theology. That see God and the world as mutually independent. That God somehow needs this world in order to be who he is. He needs us just as we need him. And friends, this is downright wrong. This strays into idolatry. Other ancient mythologies in the Near East saw gods like this, essentially like big humans who created the world either by accident or often out of a need, that they needed humanity to do something for them. Perhaps a more down-to-earth example. You might think that God is not like your cat. Who has a cat here? All right, you know cats seem to think that they're divine. They think they rule you, right? That you, serve, uh, you exist to serve them. But a cat, despite all its delusions, is actually dependent on you. Even for the simple fact that they lack opposable thumbs to open the can of food. God does not need anything since he himself gives all things to us. Life, breath, existence, your ability to imagine or solve problems, the toast you had for breakfast, the energy you used to work. God has life in himself, and from himself, God gives life. Now, why is this so important? God's society, which, as you can tell, is a pretty deep topic, captures, I think, very much how God is unlike us. He's not a Zeus, just like humanity writ large. He's not the personification of created things like a sun god or a water god. He is God who is. And we must not think we can master him or domesticate him. J.I. Packer has this helpful warning in regards to this. He says, In theology, endless mistakes result from supposing that the conditions, bounds, and limits of our own finite existence apply to God. The doctrine of Asadi stands as a bulwark against such mistakes. In our life of faith, we easily impoverish ourselves by embracing an idea that God is too limited and too small. 
And against this doctrine of aseity, sorry, against this, the doctrine of aseity stands as a bulwark to stop this happening. It is vital for spiritual health to believe that God is great. And grasping the truth of his aseity is the first step on the road to doing this. So let me suggest four initial reasons why this is important, and then we'll have a quick stretch break. Number one, God does not need us, and I think that is good news. Psalm 50 says, uh, God is speaking, and he says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of a goat from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. See, imagine if God was needy. We get a sense of this in human relationships, don't we? When, when there's a neediness that kind of drains us. See, while God made us to flourish in interdependence with one another, that we do actually need each other to be, when someone is needy, always taking, never giving, it's like trying to run a three-legged race where you do all the work. But it's not like that with God. Imagine this. He doesn't need you. Your existence is dependent on him, not the other way. He made you out of complete and utter love and grace. He doesn't need us, yet in his freedom, he chose to covenant himself to his people. Much like how I choose to freely covenant myself to my wife, Kirby, with promise and devotion. That is a God who does not need us. Secondly, God's love then is genuine and free. He gives of himself in the creation of the world and in its redemption, going even so far, Romans says, that God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you even when you don't reciprocate. That, that is true love and devotion. How does God's free love change your attitude towards him, I wonder? Another offshoot of this is that we need to recognize that all that we have Materially, experientially, by merit of our existence, all of it is received as a gift. You have things, but they are yours because God gave them to you. He possesses heaven and earth and owes us nothing. Anything you give back to God is just that, giving back. At least in part, this leads us to receive and enjoy things doubly so. What I mean is that on one level, I can delight in receiving or experiencing a beautiful sunset or a delicious cup of coffee for what it is. But knowing that it's a gift from God, knowing the gift giver, adds a whole new level of joy and delight because I know from whose hand it comes. I wonder how you could practice receiving good things from God. And fourthly, all this means that God is sufficient. We saw that in Acts 17. Because God needs nothing from us, he has all he needs from himself. 
And I think that gives us assurance that he can provide everything I do need. I utterly depend on him for life and breath and energy. And he provides out of an abundance all that I need. God's aseity. Let's have a one-minute stretch break, and then we'll get into the next section. Okay, start getting settled again, I did say one minute. We're over halfway. I did warn you these were big talks, they're designed to stretch you. So stay with me and make sure you do get more sleep tonight, those of you who only got three hours. So we've been exploring that God is of himself, the great I am. That's our first crash barrier, right? Secondly, I want to discuss another foundational aspect of God's being, and that is that he is simple. Now, this is not an insult. It's not like North Queenslanders are a bit simple. (laughs) Sorry if you're from North Queensland. I couldn't resist. It's not an insult like that, which would just be entirely inappropriate. Instead, it means that God is undivided in his essence. It's much more like the concept in chemistry, as I understand it, that when you have a compound, it is able to be divided. It's divisible, able to be broken down into smaller parts. God is not like that. Here's how Irenaeus, a really early theologian in the church, put it. He says, God is a simple, uncompounded being, without diverse members, and altogether like and equal to himself. Since his holy understanding, and holy spirit, and holy thought, and holy intelligence, and holy reason, and holy hearing, and holy seeing, and holy light, and the whole source of all that is good. He's saying God does not have parts that you can take off or put back on. That to speak of one aspect of God is to speak of his whole being. That when we talk about God's attributes, like his goodness or his holiness, the fact that he is infinite, this is helpful, 
But because God is indivisible, we always need to realize that those things are never separated. Those aspects of God are never divisible. Whatever we say about God applies to the totality of his being. It's not that God is partly immortal or partly infinite. All that is God is in God. And all that is in God is God. Now this will become very important when we try to make sense of Jesus. And just like a Sadie, you won't find a verse in the Bible saying, God is simple. But there is one that's pretty close. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Here at the introduction to the law, this is, remember, Moses' sermons. He's about to launch into recounting the law. Here at the introduction to the law, which would shape the life of Israel amongst themselves and in relation to God, is this most foundational of confessions for Jews. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheka, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The oneness of God is central to Jewish monotheism and the foundation of Christian belief. Not only that he is just one God, but that he is pure in his being. Think of it like this. God is not like a pie that we can slice up into smaller pieces, with some attributes being more God and others being less, some things being more important to being God and some not being quite as important. You can't pit God's attributes against one another. His love is not separate from his mercy or his holiness. He is perfectly one and unified. You cannot take away or add attributes to him. A follow-on from this is that God is unchanging. James chapter 1, verse 17 puts it really beautifully. He says that God is the source of every good and perfect gift. It's from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He's not like the shadows of a tree on a windy day. No, the Lord is the same yesterday and today and forever. Here's what Catherine Sonderiga says. God is fundamentally, utterly God, fully actual, Nothing is potential in God. Waiting for completion or satisfaction or unfolding, God's oneness, we might say, affirms that God is unlike all creatures who grow into their life, their maturity, and into the, I can't even say that word, their aging, it means, senescence. God, rather, is simply, holy, and inexhaustibly God, uniquely God. He always was. He continues to be and always will be. He is gloriously unlike me in this way. Remember Packer's warning of applying our own experience and limits and conditionality to God and imagining he's just like us? We need not do that. I shift and change on a daily basis. One minute, 
loving, patient, the model father. The next, cold, withdrawn, grumpy. Then laughing. Thank God that he is not like that. In fact, such is his reality that when Moses, in a moment of extreme courage, asks to see God's glory, what God reveals and proclaims is a collection of characteristics. The Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Well, here's another example from Psalm 62, 11 to 12. The psalmist says, One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. You see how the psalmist so closely ties those together? His strength and his power and then his love as well. It's in the same breath because God is never one without the other, which is good news for us, right? It means that God's wisdom is God. His power is God. His kindness is God. His grace and justice and strength and triunity is God. God's attributes aren't like bits of clothing that he can take on or put off or or pieces of armor. No, his attributes are identical with his essence, with who he is. One outcome of this is that we cannot elevate one part of God, one attribute of him to be more God than the others. Because I imagine many of us attempted to do this with God's love. I don't like the idea of a God who judges. Just give me a God who loves, we say. As if love were more central to the being of God, more essential to his nature than his Holiness, which issues forth in wrath against sin. God is love, yes. Wonderfully so. The Bible declares it in 1 John 4.8. God is also light in 1 John 1.5 and spirit in John 4.24 and consuming fire in Hebrews 12.29. And this is important. We can't separate him out because it means that God towards us is God as he is. It's not that he's powerful without love or goodness, nor is it that he's merely a God of nice intentions, that he'd like to do us good. You know, I'd really like to save you, but I just can't. No, God's power and his will are one perfectly united in his essence. God does what he wills. That is why God's promises are so precious. Because their surety rests on his nature. The one God who is the same yesterday, today and forever, in whom there is strength and love, he does all that he pleases. God is simple. Now in truth we've barely scratched the surface. What I've sought to do is introduce you to some key theological foundations to guide our thinking, particularly to establish God's godness, that he is so far above us and beyond us and unlike us. So if that's the case, 
And if it's true that, as we saw last night, we can know God truly, but not exhaustively, what does this life in himself look like? Or another way to ask the question, what is God prior to the creation of the world? Have you ever wondered that? If he's not dependent on the world to be who he is, what was he? before the world was made? Who is he apart from us? And how do we access that? Well, we must receive him as he reveals himself to us. And the beautiful, mysterious, textured unfolding of that inner life of God given to us in the Bible reveals that this life, this aseity that God has is as father Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, eternally as three. Theologian John Webster puts it like this. Aseity is life. God's life from and therefore in himself. This life is the relations of the Father, Son, and and spirit. Friends, no philosophical reasoning could lead us to this truth, but only God revealing, sending his son, sending his spirit. See, people have concluded their way to a a kind of abstract monotheism or pluralistic polytheism, but the Trinity is revealed by concrete historical moments into which God entered into his creation. He stepped over the creator-creature divide personally via the mission of the Son and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Fred Sanders says this. By the way, Fred Sanders, he's really helpful on the Trinity and I have so much more respect for him because his website is fredfredfred.com. I like a theologian who can have fun of himself. Fred Sanders says, God made it known that his unity, that is his simplicity, his aseity, was tri-unity precisely when the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the promise of redemption. The Trinity is thus a mystery in the New Testament sense of the term, something that was always true, long concealed, and now revealed. Now, how all this works out, we're going to unpack over the next two days. But I'm going to throw some questions at you now for you to chew over. Maybe in reflection time, maybe in your review groups. First of all, if God communicates himself to us through the words and actions of the Son and the Spirit, what do we learn of who and how God is in himself? by who and how he is towards us. If he is triune in himself, eternally, what do we learn about who he is eternally by how he revealed himself? Secondly, if God's aseity holds true, that he does not need creation in order to be, what does that mean for understanding God as three persons? 
How does God's society help us understand Trinity? Because I think if God were not Trinity in himself, eternally, but was an isolated, solitary being, then he would be needy and lonely. I think without the Trinity, we cannot say God is love. One theologian puts it like this. If God had not had a communicative, spreading goodness, he would never have created the world. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost were happy in themselves and enjoyed one another before the world was. Apart from the fact that God delights to communicate and spread his goodness, there had never been a creation or redemption. There's something about God's nature that overflows to create and to love and to redeem. Now, there's obviously many more questions we need to address, and thankfully, it's not all up to me. Uh, If you want to understand more of how the church sought to speak about Jesus as both divine but without jeopardizing monotheism, you should head to Aaron's seminar on the historical development of the doctrine of the Trinity this afternoon. History is good for you. Another question, what can we, what, sorry, what can we say about the shape of the inner life of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That is, how do these three persons interact What's the dynamic there? And if that piques your interest, you should head to Marty's seminar. Marty is a grad from UTS and doing a PhD at the moment on the Trinity. And while I'm at it, to think more about how having a triune God radically shapes our worldview in comparison to just a monistic God or a pluralism of gods, many gods, you should go and check out Mike Padgett's seminar. But here's one big conclusion to get you started in some of your thinking. If the life of God, if the life that God has in himself is triune, then at the very center of existence, fundamental to reality itself, is not the stuff of the world, it's not concentrated power, but it's love, relationship eternally. That is where this world came from. That is what remains at its heart. The Father eternally loving the Son in the Spirit. The three engaged in an everlasting self-giving to one another. We'll be exploring much more of this in the next few days, but let me wrap up now. I hope you've had some sense of floating out past the breakers today that feeling that there is a fathomless depth beyond our mastery. But while God is above us and beyond us, he is unlike us, he does not remain far from us. John Webster again says, God's society, although it marks God's utter difference from creatures, does not entail his isolation for what God is and has of life is of himself is life and that life includes a self-willed movement of love.
We don't want to finish today thinking that God is so different to us that he is indifferent to us. Because here is the great mystery and beauty of God. That though in himself he has life, everlasting, abundant, triune life, free from all need or dependency, that God overflowed in grace to create. More than that, he does not depart from this world, but from himself God gives himself. God is so far above and beyond us, deep and vast as the ocean. But he reaches out with the sending of the Son and the Spirit. They are like the waves on the shore that meet us, leading us into the infinite depth of God's being. And from those waves lapping at our feet of the Son and the Spirit being sent in history, As persons, we can look back along into the life of God, that fathomless ocean, life in himself as Father and Son and Spirit. But I want to finish today with something a little bit more personal that struck me as I thought about this talk. Taking us back to Isaiah chapter 40, where we started. See, after all the expansive description of God here, of his uniqueness, his power. It can be very easy to just feel small and insignificant. And in a lot of ways, that is a good place to be. For our souls to be struck by the immensity of God's bigness and depth, the purity of his holiness, the incomparable nature of his being. But in that smallness, we might be tempted to think that God doesn't care. If you've got Isaiah 40, open to verse 27 there. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. See, we could think that God is so far above and beyond that he doesn't care. But read on. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Friends, this God, our God, is so great. He's so great that he sees and knows and cares that in his holiness and love and power and goodness and aseity and simplicity, God is still for us. Behold our God. Loving Father and creator of the world, 
you who are blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to you be glory forever and ever. Amen.